Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Aaron Badenhop. I am one of the elders here at Hope and have the privilege of uh, leading us through a passage of the Word this morning. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been talking a lot about vision. And we've been talking a lot about what we've been trusting God for in the future for Hope Church. We've been talking about what we want and we want to pray to ask God to do in and through us as a church. We've been sort of envisioning the year 2031. We've been thinking about what what might it look like to be a part of hope in 2031. We've talked about several different things that we hope you might see and experience if you are a part of Hope Presbyterian Church in 2031. We've talked about how we want to be a church where members of our church are doing really well at integrating faith and work. Where faith in Christ, spiritual life is not just something that happens on Sundays. It's not just something that happens at home groups. But we see that Jesus is relevant to all of life. We display who Jesus is in all of life. So integration of faith and work. We've talked also about how we, we see a church in 2031 that exhibits emotional and spiritual health. Another way to say that is holistic Christian maturity. We want to be people that holistically, emotionally, spiritually are mature and healthy. We've talked about how we want to be a church that exhibits redemptive hospitality. That we are people who use our homes to be a place of welcome and of, of extending our homes to other people. But we also want to be people who are hosts wherever we go. We've talked about uh, being a church that is not just near the campus. Not just with some people who are somehow affiliated with campus. But we want to be a church that's for the campus. We've talked about, uh, last week, we began to talk about how we envision in 2031 a church where every member is a missionary. Every member a missionary. And if you were with us last week, Joe talked about the Great Commission. He talked about Matthew 28. And he talked about how uh, that mission that Jesus gives to his disciples is not just for clergy. It's not just for full-time Uh, Christian workers it's for all who follow Jesus so we want to be a church where every every member of hope is a missionary to the the people and the places where they are and this week I want to sort of expand on that topic a little bit and talk a little bit maybe about sort of the why uh, the, the heart behind this mission Um, And so I want to open with a a quick story from my own childhood. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my family took a vacation to northern Michigan. And and being a good Buckeye, I hate to admit it, but uh, there are some places in northern Michigan that are really pretty. I kind of have to admit it. 
Uh, and I, I, I really enjoy uh, different spots up there in the summertime, at least. Um, and one of the places my family went was a place uh, called Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. And if you've been there before, you know that there are a lot of dunes uh, at, at this place. And um, depending on where you are in these dunes, it can feel a little bit like being in the Sahara Desert almost, because there are places you can go where really all you see around you is sand. And so uh, my family went there. We went on a hike through the dunes, as you do. And as we were hiking through the dunes, we by happenstance encountered another family that we knew from back here in Ohio. Um, and this other family had some girls in, the, in it, I was probably about 10 years old. They were kind of older girls who didn't really care much about me. I didn't really care much about them. And I, even at this age, I was kind of a, a contemplative personality. I was pretty okay with sort of being on my own a little bit. And it, it felt kind of awkward to be around this family. So I kind of lagged behind. Um, and my family, I guess, must have been kind of used to that because they didn't think much of it. So I was kind of behind them going through the, like the two families together and me alone kind of in the back just following them along but I was fine I, I, I know that I was pretty content doing that um, but as you're going up and down through dunes if you can envision this with me when you are lagging behind um, when you're coming down a dune my family and this other family they were kind of going up ascending the dune in front of us on the trail but um, as they got to the peak of that dune and started descending the next dune, I would kind of lose sight of them until I got to the peak of the dune that they had just crossed. And then I would find them again and kind of continue on the trail. So we were go going through many of the dunes like this for quite some time. And then uh, there was a moment when um, I got to the peak of a sand dune and kind of looked down on the trail and expected to see my family ahead of me but I didn't see them. Um, I kind of looked everywhere. I didn't see where they went. But again, I had been successfully following them lagging behind for a while. And so I thought to myself as a 10 year old, like, well, they probably just got enough ahead of me that they ascended the next hill and are probably walking down that one. And so this looks like the trail. I'm sure they're up there. I'll just continue, continue on. So you might be able to see where this is going. Um, I continued going to the peaks of the next sand dune where I thought my, where I would see my family and um, they were nowhere to be found. And you know what, I, I was not super stressed about this. I, I was pretty sure that um, if I just continued on the path I was headed on, that they were on that path also and I would find them eventually. Um, but then it began, I began as time went on to realize like, I, I may be kind of lost here um and if you're feeling any anxiety about this like i'm, I'm here telling the story right so I, I i turned out okay my my parents were smart enough to go and find a park ranger station and they uh, as it was getting to be dusk they um sent out sort of a search committee and they found me before i was left out overnight in the wilderness uh by myself thankfully um but the reason I, I share this story is not to try to get your sympathy about a, a childhood trauma that I, I went through. The, the reason I share this story with you is because 
in so many ways, this picture of me being lost in the sand dunes is similar to a biblical metaphor regarding uh, how the Bible portrays people who are not in relationship, right relationship with God. The Bible uses this image or this metaphor of lostness to describe what it's like to be a human being who is not in right relationship with God. And Jesus himself uses this image, uses this metaphor several different times in the Gospels. If you even think of Luke chapter 15, for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you know that in Luke chapter 15, there are three different parables. There is the parable of the lost sheep. There is the parable of the lost coin. There is the parable of the lost or the the prodigal son. So Jesus in his teaching uses this metaphor of lostness to describe what people are like apart from right relationship with God. And in the passage we'll be looking at this morning in Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives us a very clear and concise mission statement. He tells us why he came. He told us what his mission or his ministry is about. In verse 10 of chapter 19, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So in our 2031 vision, we imagine that a typical member of hope would have a similar mentality, a similar vision, a similar heartbeat to those park rangers that went out and found me in the middle of the desert. Or of the standings. But in our in our cultural moments, this idea of people being lost apart from right relationship with God, I think it can be a pretty offensive idea to a lot of people, quite honestly. Our culture right now uh, values individual freedom and authenticity above all things. Uh, the freedom of the individual to be and to do whatever one wants to do is our culture's vision of the highest good. And so the idea of someone like a Christian considering someone else to be lost is a pretty offensive concept, I think, in our culture today. And so I wonder, for you this morning... How does this image of lostness for those who are not in right relationship with God, how does that image sit with you this morning? How does this vision I've been talking about of members of hope being the kinds of people who seek after and outreach to those who are lost, that being something that hope members live into that vision, how does that sit with you this morning? Well, if, you might, if you're like me, there might be some questions about that. There might be uh, some ways you might have some internal resistance about this mission of following Jesus and seeking out the lost. For some of us, that, that resistance might be with the metaphor of lostness itself. Because you might be saying to yourself, who are we as Christians to consider those who are not Christians to be lost. I mean, when we look at the church right now, there's been this sort of great revealing of the brokenness of so many Christians in so many churches. 
in our cultural moment right now, we see uh, that there are so many, there's been revealings of churches where there has been abuse within the church, but that abuse has been covered up in order to protect mostly white men in power. There have been situations where there has, we've seen the brokenness where uh, there are many Christians who are, who are content to sort of turn a blind eye towards racism, racism in our culture. Uh, there are Christians that seem more content with the pursuit of power than valuing integrity in our culture. Um, and so how many of us are very motivated to try to help people who are outsiders of the faith to come into the church when it feels like the church is just so broken? Who are we to consider outsiders to the faith those who are lost? If that's you this morning, I get it. It's a tough question. But there's others of us that may struggle with this calling to live out this mission of reaching out to the lost for totally, for very different reasons. For some of us, uh, we may not really have a lot of trouble seeing and experiencing outsiders to the faith as being lost. When we drive down streets and we see uh, signs and yards that have this secular creed that seems so opposed to so many core beliefs of Christianity. It's not hard for some of us to see that, that others are lost. When we look online on social media and we see the anger that so many in our culture have towards the church right now, maybe it's not so difficult to see outsiders as being lost. Um, and even when we see sort of the beliefs or the commitments of people uh, to things like abortion, maybe we're more tempted to call someone like that evil than to call them lost. But what might God have to say to us this morning? If it's, it's true that people are lost without a right relationship with God through Christ, and if it's true that God calls us to go and make disciples, as Joe talked about last week, what might God have to say to us about the internal resistance we might have to this mission? But before we dive into our text, I'd like to say a quick prayer. God, I, I pray that you would use this time. I pray that you would give me words to speak. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds as you see fit. I pray that you would use this uh, meager attempt to share from your word uh, to be something that you use by your Holy Spirit to make us more into the people that you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Um, if you want to pull that up on your phone, you're welcome to, too, though I'll be reading it if you just like to listen. That's fine also. So Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, He, he being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, a quick aside, that, that note that Jesus is passing through is not a throwaway detail. He's on his way to somewhere else. This is not a place he intends to go to do preaching, teaching, ministry. He's on his way to somewhere else. 
continuing in verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if you grew up in church like me, you are familiar with this story. If you have children and you read the Jesus Storybook Bible, this is a, a main story that's in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I, if, if you had asked me, that same 10-year-old who got lost in the sun dunes that, that summer... If you had asked me about Zacchaeus, I, I probably could have recognized that name because I remember singing a song about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. A wee little man was he. And um, that's probably all I could have told you about Zacchaeus, though, as a 10-year-old boy. that He was a short, short guy. Uh, and so, so often in our telling of this story with our children, we get so caught up with his stature that we miss some of the main points of what what Luke is telling us when he shares this story with us. Now, his stature is not unimportant. That's the very practical reason why he needs to climb the sycamore tree. He can't see Jesus through the crowds. He needs to be able to, to climb the tree to see Jesus. So it's not unimportant, but it's not the main point. I think Luke includes this story about Zacchaeus after Jesus has told these three parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, I think he tells the story about Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is the quintessential lost person. He is the real life human being example of these parables that Jesus has been teaching about earlier in the gospel. Zacchaeus is the quintessential lost person. And the text says that even though he's short, he does have a lot going for him. He's described as being rich. In a day and age where people are really struggling to get by, struggling to survive, Zacchaeus has an overabundance of resources. Zacchaeus is rich. Zacchaeus has a position of power. He is a chief tax collector. In other words, the other tax collectors report to him, and this is part of why he has so much wealth he has a position of power he has this position in, in part because he's in 
right relationship with the Roman Empire, the Roman authorities, the the political and military power of Rome in a way is sort of behind Zacchaeus's wealth and power. He has a lot going for him. But when word comes to Zacchaeus that this man named Jesus is coming through town, he stops everything and he wants to come and see Jesus. Luke tells us very clearly Zacchaeus' intent, what he what he wants to do. Verse 3 says that Zacchaeus is seeking to see Jesus. In the midst of his wealth, in the midst of his position of power, he is seeking to see Jesus. So my first point this morning is that many of the lost are seeking. Many of the lost are really genuinely seeking. And they may not even know how to term that or how to say that. They may not even be super consciously aware of that. But many of the lost are absolutely seeking and are spiritually open. Because if you had done a survey in Jericho, my guess would be that the people there would not have imagined that Zacchaeus would have been the first one to turn to Jesus, to come to faith in Christ that day. My, my guess is that uh, Zacchaeus would have been one of the last people that the people in Jericho would have imagined to, to have a right relationship with God that day. Uh, he would have been seen as a political traitor, an enemy of the faith. Because he was in cahoots with the Roman Empire, uh, he was not well liked, which is part of the reason why it's scandalous when Jesus stays with him and spends time with him because they think of him as a sinner. But Luke tells us that in spite of Zacchaeus' wealth, in spite of his reputation as being someone who is sort of opposed to God and opposed to God's people, that Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. There was something about Jesus that made Zacchaeus at least a, a, a little curious. But curious enough... That he is willing to be so undignified to do what a schoolboy does, to climb a tree, to be able to see Jesus. But my point in sharing this this morning is that Zacchaeus is not alone. Zacchaeus is not alone. There are, there are more people out there like Zacchaeus. A few weeks ago, I got to have a conversation with an acquaintance who is really a, a friend of a friend that I really didn't know at all, but we were able to spend some time together and hang out and kind of pulled away from the crowd and started having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So I just started asking a lot of questions. We'll uh, call him Jim. Jim uh, has a lot going for him in life. Uh, he has his master's degree from the university. Uh, earlier in his career, he actually worked in government. He worked in Washington, D.C. He was the right-hand man of a, of a congressman. Uh, he told me that he had the privilege of writing some legislation that was actually voted on on the floor of Congress. Um, as he started having a family, he decided to move back to his home state 
and um, he was hired to work really closely with the mayor of, of his city. And so for years now, he's been working really high up in the local government of his city. Uh, he has a position now where financially he, he has a job that is very secure. He has a benefits package that has him set for the rest of his life. But as I began to ask him questions, I asked him a little bit about his spiritual background. And that's where the conversation took an interesting turn. He shared with me that growing up, he attended church pretty frequently. Uh, but about a dozen years ago or so, he decided that he could not believe in God. He could not believe in Christ. And he, he said the reason was because he saw hypocrisy in the church. He saw abuse scandals. And the whole idea of organized religion just completely turned him off. So I just started asking him more about his beliefs and he expressed from, from that experience that what really matters to him is not what we believe about God or about religion. What really ought to matter for us is the value of integrity, the virtue of integrity. What really matters is that we be, in, we, we be people that have integrity. I found that to be very interesting. And as a Christian, I, I told Jim, I said, I actually agree with you. Integrity really matters. It's really important, and it, and it makes a whole lot of sense that you care a lot about integrity. I get it. But I asked him more questions about that. I said, can you tell me more about why you value integrity so much? Is it just because of these things that happen uh, at churches that you were not even a, a, a part of? Is there more to this story of why you value integrity so much? And he chose to be really honest with me. He said, you know... Years ago, I was in a relationship with a girl, an ex-girlfriend, and I made some decisions that really betrayed her. And to this day, I still feel a lot of guilt and shame about what I did to her. I said, wow, thank you, thank you for being so honest and sharing with me about that. He said, but you know... He's getting kind of choked up. He said, but I still, I still wrestle with, I still wonder, can I believe in Jesus? Can I, can I believe in God? Is there more to Jesus than what I see in so many broken Christians, in so many broken churches? I really, I want to try to figure out if I can believe in God still. See, Jim has a lot going for him. My guess is the people around him would not really understand these, these layers underneath of what's going on in his heart and his soul and his mind. He's, in, he's doing very well for himself. In so many ways, he's sort of living the American dream. But Zacchaeus is not alone. Jim is not alone. People are seeking. People are looking for answers. They're looking for more than what they have in life. My second point this morning is that Jesus is finding and saving. Jesus is finding those who are lost. He's finding proactively those who are seeking and he is rescuing. He is saving. In verse 5 we see when Jesus came to that place where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay 
at your house today. So again, Jesus is on his way to somewhere else. But there's two things that Jesus does in this passage. First, Jesus notices Zacchaeus. He notices Zacchaeus. There's a crowd of people around. But Jesus has, through the help of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual awareness. An awareness and the ability to notice Zacchaeus, who is seeking to see him. And uh, in our fast-paced culture today, where it seems like there's always more to do, always more to be done, we're always on the way to something else, and we're distracted also by our, by our technological age, what would it look like to be people who notice others like Jesus does, like Jesus notices Jesus? But second, Jesus does something else. He is bold with what I would call a gracious intrusion. He exhibits a gracious intrusion in Zacchaeus' life. Now, when we look at what Jesus actually says, I don't know that Luke is giving us what Jesus says is like a, a perfect script. I mean, we're not the son of God, right? Um, it's very bold, though, isn't it? He, he, he has some urgency and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. Now that may sound kind of bossy to us, may sound kind of demanding, but why does Jesus do this? Is Jesus doing this because he thinks Zacchaeus is a rich guy who probably has some good chefs and he's interested in getting a nice meal? That's probably not what's going on, right? It's probably not manipulative. This is a gracious intrusion, why? Because Zacchaeus has money, Zacchaeus has power, Zacchaeus does not have a lot of friends. Zacchaeus probably has a pretty big house and a lot going for him that is mostly empty, and he's probably pretty lonely. And so, yes, it's bold. Yes, it's intrusive, but it is gracious because Jesus is offering something. He's aware of Zacchaeus' felt needs, and he's offering Zacchaeus something of what Zacchaeus really wants and needs, and that's relationship and friendship. When he's talking about staying at his house today, this is not, this is what happens with Jesus talking to Zacchaeus is not a lecture about how he's too greedy and he needs to stop being so greedy. That's not where he goes. He says, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. Even if it's scandalous to everyone else here, I want to be with you. And I, I just want to um, take a moment to uh, brag on my wife for a moment because she is really good at following Jesus in this example. Now, our neighborhood uh, is a lot like, my, I'm guessing, many of your neighborhoods where um, there are a lot of people who live in their home but don't know any of their neighbors. And pretty much, even if you're outside and you see people, you just sort of ignore them. If you don't know them, why would you talk to them? Um, and sadly, we ourselves uh, tended to live that way quite a bit for the first years that we that we lived in our home. Uh, but my wife really began to have a conviction about this, that she wanted to change that. And so she started noticing neighbors when they were outside. And even though they didn't pay any attention to her, she would approach them, introduce her, herself and 
uh, start trying to get to know them. And lo and behold, that was actually pretty welcome for most of them. They weren't necessarily intentionally trying to be unfriendly, they just were. But just very simple noticing them and taking steps, moving towards them, trying to just spark a conversation with them went a really long way. She's been building awesome relationships with women in the neighborhood. In fact, one of the women um, is really seemingly spiritually open and seeking, and she she gave this woman a Christian book, a book that she probably would never have picked up on her own, honestly. And um, it's very simple. It's not manipulative. It's not pushy. But she's doing a great job of noticing neighbors and just trying to enter into their life and just being curious about what God might be doing in their life. Trying to be authentic about her own faith. Again, not in a manipulative or contrived way. Sometimes these conversations are awkward. But when you're authentic, when you're genuine, it really comes through. And so um, she might be a little bit ashamed that I was bragging on her like that. But uh, I just wanted to even give like a real life example of this isn't something that we just look at what Jesus did two millennia ago with appreciation of what he did for other people. Of course, we've experienced his finding in our own life. But we can follow him in his own seeking out the lost. Lastly, the found simply recognize their lostness. The found, those who are saved, those who are rescued, are not people who are better than other people. Those who are found are people who recognize their own lostness apart from Christ finding them. In verse 6 it says, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Notice, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. How does Jesus respond? He says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I said earlier that some of us may have resistance to this calling to be a missionary to the people that God has placed us around and with. Some of us, it may be because we are really concerned about being prideful and judgmental and even thinking about we have something to offer anybody. Bringing people into a broken and messed up church. Others of us, we struggle with this calling, not because we struggle with seeing people as lost, but because it's easy for us to almost think they're too far gone. They're so far out in the sand dunes that It's not even worth their lost cause. But this passage this morning sort of gets to the heart of both of these resistances. Because uh, Zacchaeus, after he experiences Jesus' gracious intrusion in his life, he embodies for us what a found person looks like. He embodies for us what a rescued or saved person looks like looks like that the only thing that makes Zacchaeus different from anybody else is that he recognizes that he has been living in wrong ways and he wants to make it right 
What makes Zacchaeus different than anybody else as a found person is that he repents. He recognizes that he had not been honoring God with the way he was living. And he wanted to change it. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright commenting on this passage about Zacchaeus. He says it this way. Where Jesus is, there salvation is to be found for those who accept him as master and reorder their lives accordingly. So those who are saved, those who are found, those who are rescued are those who recognize their lostness apart from Jesus finding them. But in response to Jesus finding them, they reorder their lives accordingly. So the the one and only thing that makes a found person different from a lost person is that Jesus has found them. And they've responded by trying to reorder their lives. Being a found person is not an opportunity for judgment. It's not an opportunity for pride. In fact, when you think about the Gospels and you think about the people who are the most prideful, the most judgmental people in the Gospels, who is it? Well, it's the Pharisees. It's, it's the religious leaders. And so, if we assume that we are in the right, if we assume that the lost are, are too far gone to be saved, then we really should question, are we those who are found? Because those who are found are repentant. Those who are found are humble. Those who are, have been rescued recognize that they are broken apart from Christ. A person who is found is humble and is repentant. But God has changed their life. So in our 2031 vision, we see hope as a church where every member is a missionary. We see a future where every member is aware of other people around them. We're able, by the Spirit's guidance, to notice others around us who may be spiritually open. We're willing to take bold steps to move towards people genuine relationships, genuine care and concern for who they are and where they're at in their story. We're the kind of people who look for opportunities to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in our life. That there's nothing really all that special about us. But that Jesus has found Jesus is the one who has found us. We're not pointing to ourselves. We're not pointing to anything great about us. We're pointing to the one who seeks and saves those who are lost so we're people who have authentic joy of having been lost but now are found having been blind but now we see let me pray God uh, we have this vision of being a church where every member is a missionary and we recognize right now that um, we cannot do that in our own strength We cannot do that by our own willpower. We cannot do that by our own strategies. Um, We need the work of your spirit to be the kind of people working in us and through us to make disciples. But Lord, uh, we don't want to be on the sidelines of your mission. We don't want to be a church that's just merely surviving, going through the motions of Christian activities. We want to be a church 
where the people in our church are on the forefront of your mission as you seek and save the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.